You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, and unafraid witness. Thank you for listening. Remain standing with me as I lead us now in prayer as we open up the Word of God. But don't lose this gaze upon Jesus. Just intensify it now as we pray. Oh, Holy Father, we thank you today from the bottom of our hearts for the reality of the fact that we can come here and we can clearly see a risen God. Thank you, God, for the reality of your Son, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who put us in the race, the one who sustains us during the race, the one who stands at the finish line awaiting us to finish this race. Thank you, God, for your Son. Thank you, O Lord, for your Holy Spirit, which lives within us, which indwells us, which to open our eyes to the fullness of who you are, to move our spirits to the places you long for them to be, and God, to experience the presence of you as we worship and as we open up the word and as we live our lives together as followers of Jesus Christ. Thank you, God, for the awesome reality of the Holy Spirit. God, as we open up your word today, I pray that your spirit that dwells within us would allow us to see the truths we're going to learn so plainly and so clearly. And God, would you allow the words that are preached, God, be your words. Would they allow them to penetrate our hearts? And God, I pray that this passage of Scripture would draw us near to our Savior and even rock us in places we need to be rocked, Lord. Would you look down upon us and find a faithful church, God, not a complacent church, not a wandering church, but a faithful church today, Lord, I pray. We love you, God. We're thankful for your word, which is everything to us. Speak now as we open it, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat this morning. You can turn with me your Bibles to Acts uh, chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, looking at just the first 25 verses today. We're actually starting a new sermon series. It's a a sermon series called On Mission that's going to carry us right till the end of June. Uh, First seven chapters of Acts, as you know, are a motivating and empowering story of how God fueled the fire of the early church and how he infiltrated his people with an audacious faith to see and do things for him that can only be attributed to him. But the book of Acts is not a history lesson on the early church. You know what it is? It's really a call of God on all of our lives so we know how we are to live, how we are to respond to God, if we're going to experience God in the exact same way. So here's the breakdown that I've come up with you for you through the book of Acts. It's simply this God empowered the first few chapters, showing us the fullness of, of how, where the power comes from. It comes from the Holy Spirit. And then the next part, the next few chapters, audacious faith. Now, what moves the church forward, men and women of audacious faith, and yet the rest of this book is going to really be about this, about God's empowered people with audacious faith on mission for him. The rest of this story is simply God, this little spark that God started in the early church. He is about to blow a wildfire that's going to spread throughout the whole region through his people. And so the first seven chapters of people are in Jerusalem. We get to chapter eight, and all of a sudden, because after Stephen is stoned, this, this did something in the people. After chapter 8 comes, and now this, this message of the gospel is not just contained within Jerusalem. It, it explodes throughout the hillside around and really this is the key moment in church history. Acts, between Acts chapter 7 and Acts chapter 8 is a key moment in church history. It's a new era for the people of God. Think about it. Think about it. Good things are happening. Church is about 20,000 people now, and yet one of their key leaders dies. 
It's almost like we could collectively hold our breath. What happens next? Either God's people are going to scatter, as you know, you stomp on an anthill, right? God's people are going to scatter, and it's going to be over, or they're going to rise up. With this audacious faith, they're going to be bold and courageous to keep going for the Lord. And so let's read here in chapter 8 what happens. After the brutal death of Stephen in chapter 7, a call for us to be all in. Here's what happens. Chapter 8, and Saul approved of this execution. Saul's standing there watching over Stephen being killed, and he, he's smiling his approval. The ringleader of God's opposition is smiling his approval. And this is what happened next for the people, this new era of the church. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church. You mean greater than somebody dying by being bludgeoned to death with stones? Yes, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Guess who? Guess what? Except for the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. It's a new era, all right, what's happening. The opposition is intensified for God's people. Instead of a little bit of persecution, they're ravaging the church and, and they're knocking on doors at night. They're busting through doors at night and dragging Christians out of bed. They're, they're disrupting the dinner table and like turning them over and, and dragging people off to prison. They're, they're interrupting games night for God's people. Can you imagine being in this era? The fear, the temptation to be like, okay, like if this is what it's all about, I'm out. And you look at the disciples. I love what it says about the disciples here. Everyone scattered. They did scatter. They're running for their lives, kind of like, well, we got to somehow follow Jesus but still be alive. Disciples, they stayed put. You guys go do what you got to do, but we're staying here in Jerusalem. This is quite a contrast between the disciples when Jesus was at the cross. Remember that? They were cowering in the upper room. Now they're like, you know what? We have the power of the Holy Spirit. We have this audacious faith. We're staying put in Jerusalem. We're going to fight this battle here. That's pretty awesome. That's what the Holy Spirit does in us too when persecution comes. Disciples are like, we're following this call of God. We're following God's mission whenever he calls, wherever he leads. Notice this too in the first few verses of this. It's the opposition that is the catalyst to actually cause the church to go beyond Jerusalem and go into the mission field that God called them to. Remember what God said in the first, first, first sermon of this whole series? I'll give you power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What's the catalyst that propels his people beyond Jerusalem to the ends of the earth? Opposition, hardship, persecution. We often see opposition as bad, don't we? Man, it's getting hard, it's getting hard. What's God doing? Maybe God's moving us to a place of greater effectiveness and greater proclamation of the gospel. Maybe God's moving us into places that we probably never go, into people we'd never talk to with the gospel. This is what's happening in the early church. Samaria is one of those places that they probably would not have circled on. Like, where are we going to preach the gospel first? Let's go to Samaria. It wasn't like they're like, hmm, church plant number one is going to be in Samaria. Remember, the Jewish people hated the Samaritans. The Jewish people hated these half-breed Jews. They didn't really fit in anywhere, the Samaritans. No one liked them. They were disliked, they were distrusted, they were disinterested in them, and yet, and yet it's the opposition, the winds of opposition that scatter the seeds of the gospel, as Bill McDonald puts it. I love just a quick lesson in this before we get on to the main part of this text. 
quick lesson is this. Sometimes God gets his people moving in the direction he wants them to move through hard times. We ought not to be afraid of hard times in our lives. We ought not to be afraid of persecution. And God moving us to uncomfortable places. Maybe it's not, maybe it's not Satan. Maybe it's God allowing that so we'll get in front of a people that would never hear the gospel any other way if we're going to stay in our little comfort zones. If the disciples are going to stay in the little comfort zone of Jerusalem. It's a new era, but it's also, it's a great time, really. It's a time of new impact, this new era of impact. Look what happens. Philip, Philip is one of the, the deacons who is being scattered. Remember, the apostles are staying put. The deacons are part of the, those being scattered. Well, he's one of the Greek deacons who was appointed to, to uh, meet the needs of the people. Now, verse 4, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So all of a sudden he became a, a deacon who was simply about ministering to needs. He became a preacher of the word of God. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him. And they saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. This is a new era of impact for the church. Not just Jerusalem. Now it's like the Samaritans are hearing and there's, there's revival starting and, and people are being healed. And, and again, it's this, this whole reality of there's joy in the city and, and it's, a, it's a pure, flat-out gospel revival. Have you ever seen those, those uh, videos of, of people rejoicing when their city is, it's announced their city is going to be recipient of the Olympic Games? Have you ever seen those? There's confetti and there's like, whoa, it's like the greatest thing that ever happened. That's what's happening here, but in a greater way. Like Jesus is moving among the people. And so we see, just in the first part of Acts chapter 8, the church was derailed for a minute, and we wondered what's going to happen, what's going to happen. God's an unstoppable God who, who moves in an unstoppable way in his church. And so the church might have been derailed for a second, it seemed. It's now back on the tracks and steamrolling for the Lord. Salvation, life transformation, glory to God. And then there's Simon. Then there's the part of the text that we're going to focus on today, this, this story of Simon the magician who first reads, seems like, man, this is just a, a, an overflow of all the good that's happening. But as you read it and as you study it, as you understand it closely, it's, it's really not a good parenthesis to the story. It's a reminder to us and a be aware to us of this reality that even in the midst of God doing great things, even in the midst of God moving his church forward, there is always going to be false converts among you who seem to respond to the gospel but who have no interest in the Lord of the gospel at all. Let me read this for you, the rest of this, and we're going to unpack it together. Simon the magician believes, it says, you can put a little quotes around the word believes in your notes. But there was once there a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria saying he, that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest. Everybody saying this, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, it says here. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. 
Now when the apostles of Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. Man, did he miss a day? Saying this, give, give me this power also. He could, okay. It's a magician, right? Seeing someone else do great and mighty things. You can kind of put yourself in Simon's mindset here. Take some money, give me this power also that anyone whom I lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, and he didn't say this gently, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent therefore this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you're in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Simon answered this way. I'm not going to pray, but why don't you pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So kind of a odd passage to start out like the next phase of ministry with, isn't it? As I'm like breaking down the passion of my study and I'm realizing that this is, this is the, the turning point for the church or where they spread out. I, I'm expecting it's all going to be like life transformation and amazing things happening and, and no turning back and yet we get this story in here of what is essence a false convert within the church. Why now? Why this point? I, I believe because God is a great warning for us and a great caution for us as we are endeavor to live out this mission of Jesus Christ to take the gospel to the world. And, and it's a, a call on us to really check our own hearts first and, and, and make sure we're not following in line with Stephen or with Simon following his, in his footsteps. But it's also a call for us to be discerning and have eyes wide open, not walking into this mission naive of the reality of all the spiritual battles that are going to go on around us. It's a call of God for us to be aware of false converts that so easily infiltrate the church and mess up the work of God that he wants to do among his people. Here's point number one I want you to write in your notes. Simply this, Christian fakes are a reality I need to be aware of. Christian fakes are a reality I need to be aware of. I wish someone had told me this early on in ministry, to be honest. I assumed, and I set myself up for so much discouragement and so much despair because I assumed that if I preached the message that someone would say that I believe that they were just in the kingdom of God. Can you imagine the, dis the dismay in my head when people would say the right words and do the right things only to find that they had no desire for God a little while later and they had no desire to even live out the calling of God? Understanding this will help us not set ourselves up for false expectations and major, major disappointments as we're on mission for Jesus. Yes, the mission of Jesus is an awesome privilege. Yes, there's amazing joys, but it's also an arduous task that is going to sometimes rock us and confuse us. 
Here's a guy, let me just summarize this a little bit for you so you fully understand what's happening. Here's a guy that thought he was something special and everyone else did too. He's a magician in the city. You think David Copperfield and Chris Angel and David Blaine, like this guy is good. He's like this freaky meditating stuff. He's like escaping from places you think you could never escape from. He's pulling cards out of ridiculous places, that kind of guy. He was the thing. But then Philip comes to town, all of a sudden his thing isn't the thing anymore. Because Philip is preaching... People are seeing demons being cast out. People are seeing healings happen. People are seeing lives being completely changed. And, and even this, this magician is like, I, I can't do that stuff. I'm here and these guys are here. So I think Simon had this mentality, if you can't beat them, join them. And it appeared at first that Simon bought into this whole message too. He was doing the right things. He was saying the right things and and. Right before we get to, chapter, to verse 14, we're probably in the church going like, wow, let's get this guy to the front to tell a story. Like, this guy is like a glory story of the century. Let's get the video cameras rolling. Let's do this thing. But all of a sudden, Peter and John come down to lay hands on the people to receive the Holy Spirit. And all you're wondering about this, let me give you a parenthesis on what's happening here before we move on to the story. It's in the text. And all they're like, see, I told you, Pastor, I knew it. We need, the Holy Spirit doesn't come when, when, when we accept Christ. I, I, there's... There's got to be something. They've got to have the anointed ones to lay hands on us to get the Holy Spirit. There's a whole different thing. You've got to call 1-800-HOLY SPIRIT to get this. Actually, that's not what this is teaching at all. Remember, Acts is a transition book, right? And so some things happening in Acts aren't the norm for believers. And so even before we saw this, they, they believed and they, rec they received. They believe and you receive the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1 tells us you believe, you receive the Holy Spirit. What's happening here is God has delayed the Holy Spirit for just a time for a couple of important purposes of the church is getting established. God can do that, right? Can do whatever he wants to make his point. And so he's making a point here. Remember the Jews and Samaritans, they're like, they're not, they're not in sync. And so to protect the church from thinking, well, this is a movement of God here, and this is another movement of God over here. He's like, hey, I'm going to hold off on this Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit coming. He doesn't do this now. He doesn't done this since, but I'm going to hold off just to make sure that everyone knows this is one movement of God. This is the same God in Jerusalem as it is in Samaria. And so what he does, he has Peter and John come down, the church leaders, to affirm that, hey, these people that we used to hate, we used to hate, we're actually now family together to make sure the unity and the love of the church was maintained as they went forward. So don't read any wonky stuff into this passage like many people have. And go out of here thinking, well, I got I, no super spiritual man has laid hands on me. You accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You have the Holy Spirit within you by the power of God. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. That was the point of what's happening here. But what also happened here is it kind of brings out the heart of Simon. Simon sees Peter and John like laying hands on people, the Holy Spirit coming in and giving this audacious faith we've been talking about. Simon's like, I want a piece of this action. This will take my whole show from like here to here. He's like, give me some cash. How much would it take for me to be awesome like you guys? I love Peter because he doesn't pull punches, right? Look what Peter says. You can't miss the power of these words. Peter is not messing around. He's not a little gentle. Well, man, let me teach you something. Got a lot to learn, young believer. Look at verse 20. Peter says this, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You know, one commentator, J.B. Phillips, interprets this. To hell with you and your money. 
You have neither part nor lot in this matter. For your heart is not right before God. He's saying you have no place with God or in his family. It's evidenced by the fact that your heart is not in the right place. You don't even get the gospel at all. So repent. See verse 22? Faith always comes with repentance. You notice how that was missing from Simon's little, little testimony at the beginning here? There's, he believed and was baptized. There's no repentance in there. You don't get the gospel, Simon. Repent. And if possible, he says, if possible, why is that? God can't save him? No, if possible, if you're willing to humble your heart and actually accept the gospel for what the gospel is, then, then your heart will be forgiven you. And Simon, in his pride, you know how there's no repentance for sure in this passage? Simon, in his pride, you know what he says? How about you pray for me? No humility, no brokenness before the Lord. This is kind of a wow moment of the early church. Here's Simon. He was believed, baptized, and yet still bound for hell. This can happen right here. How does this happen? The word believed early on in the scriptures, in the, the passage here, the word believed is, is talking about an intellectual assent to a, yeah, he acknowledged that, that God could be real, but he didn't believe as in like put his whole life behind it. He got it all up here, but he missed it down here. Shocking. It's a fake. He's a phony. It's a pretender. Simon looks like one thing, but he's really not that at all. We kind of get the whole idea of fake and phony, right? Like we, we live in a culture that we, we, almost, we almost don't know what's real and what's not real, right? Just, just even like we got on this Amazon thing recently, and so I'm looking for deals because you apparently get deals on Amazon, and so I find a pair of Nikes for my son, right size and everything, for five bucks. And I'm like, this is awesome, man, five bucks. I should get like 20 pairs. We're just like, just get one. See how it goes. Ordered it, and like a week later, I'm like, where are these shoes? Two weeks later, like, are they coming or what? So went back and clicked on it. Like, they're coming from China. Zach's like, Dad, you do know they're fake, right? I'm like, that's okay, son. No one will ever know. Just you and I, now 600 other people, I told you the story. <laughs> so don't rail on my kid for his fake Nikes, all right? <laughs> it's okay, Zach. No one's ever going to know, right? No one's ever going to know. Like, they're going to look the same. You're not going to pick up and let your friends smell them, are you, and touch them. They're going to be on your feet, and your feet you should only last a month anyway, so it's really not a big deal, right? But isn't it hard sometimes to tell the difference between what's fake and what's real? It's not a big deal with Nikes, but you know what it is a big deal with? It is a big deal with believers. It is a big deal with, with people who claim to be in the faith. It's hard to know what's, what's real and not real. There's so many people that, that they, they look the part, they say the right things, they talk the part convincingly, the difference is they're not made with the, the same material. They're not made from the power of the Holy Spirit by being born again. And that's a massive issue, not just for the individual soul who might be playing a game, but for the church. You get a church filled with all these different Simons, and the church is in trouble. So God right away puts us on our guard. First to check our own hearts, 
Make sure we're not being like Simon. We're going to unpack some of the, the realities of how we can spot a fake from a, from, a, from a real thing, from the text. But make sure we're not, make sure we're not following Jesus for all the wrong reasons. But then also to be wise and discerning and interacting with others who might also be like Simon, just doing their thing because somehow he thinks that God's going to elevate him and give him more glory and, and God's in this thing for him instead of him being in this thing for God. Don't think this doesn't happen today in the church. Big God movement come happening and, and people are, seem to be excited about something. I want to be a part of something exciting so people come but not really understanding the gospel and never really been changed by the gospel, you know, want to go to cool places, hang out with people that, that maybe we'll, 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 we'll be friends with, and maybe, maybe get a platform that I would never have anywhere else. Maybe I can have it within the church. I so long for significance. Maybe I can have that in the church. The world's not giving me the time of day, so maybe I can pretend to be like these guys, and they'll give me some prestige. Happens today, which is why the warning is here. Here's a trademark of a knock, trademarks of a knockoff faith that we see from Stephen's life. Here's some trademarks of a knockoff faith. Selfish ambition, number one. Simon's here. He doesn't want Jesus for salvation and spiritual life. He wants Jesus for what Jesus can give him and all the physical benefits. He's using Jesus for personal gain. This is, in fact, where we got the word. You may not have heard it lately, but it's an English word. It's called simony. It comes from the person of Simon. And it's making a business of that which is sacred, the commercialism of God's stuff. Flip on your TV, the Christian channel at night, you see all this all over the place, right? Like, hey, if you send me 20 bucks, I'll give you this nice little prayer hanky that's going to change your prayer life. Are you kidding me? That hanky does nothing for your prayer life, but people are trying to profit off of God. This is what Simon is doing. He's not really seeing his urgent need of a savior and wanting to reconcile his heavenly father. He is coming to God with a what's in it for me mentality. Maybe God can give me some personal glory. Maybe God will, will enhance my portfolio. Ultimately, I think simply it's this. Simon's upset there's a new show in town, and he has no idea what the full nature of what's going on. Now, these guys aren't magicians. What's, magic comes from, you know, right? Comes from, yeah, and deception. This is a, a life-transforming movement of God. Simon has no idea. He didn't really love Jesus. Just loved what he could do for him and how he could benefit him. Sounds like a lot of people in our culture today, doesn't it? I mean, like prosperity preachers, come to Jesus. He'll make you whatever you want to be and give you whatever you want. Really? So like, I'm God and he's my servant? Really? That, that's the way? It doesn't work that way at all. Whenever there's a 100% selfish ambition attached to my devotion to Jesus, you know that it's not true faith. Second thing is this, is an unchanged heart. Peter, after he tells him to take his money and go to hell, you have neither part or lot in this matter if your heart is not right before God. Your, his heart was completely in the wrong place. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. That is never spoken of as a believer. Believers are never spoken of in this way in the Bible. Yes, sin can affect us, sin can corrupt us. But in the gall of iniquity, Deuteronomy 
29.18, he's talking about your heart's in a place of idolatry and apostasy. What does a gallbladder do? I just see the word gall. I think gallbladder. What does a gallbladder do? Collects all the bile of your body and stores it. Simon, your heart is like a spiritual gallbladder. You're just, all it is is storing up sin and wickedness and evil and full of sin and pride and self-seeking. There's no desire to worship God here. It's an unchanged heart. No desire to know God through his word. No desire to humbly follow Jesus. He's hoping really that God would follow him instead of him following God. He's a false convert. And finally, I've alluded to this before, his refusal to repent. His refusal to repent. Obviously, there's never been a born-again experience, as John 3 tells us. When, when, we're, when we're truly saved, there is a born-again experience. Simon has no real awareness of the horror of his own sin that separates him from God. Therefore, there's no remorse, no conviction, no brokenness. Well, it doesn't say there's no remorse there. If you tell somebody that your heart is in the gall of iniquity and all your response is, why don't you pray for me then? Tell me, I've sat through sermons where people have said some harsher things than that of truth from God's word, and my heart is just crushed by the reality. Like, yes, he's describing me. What do I do? I want to repent. I want you to pray for me. I want to pray for myself right now. Simon would go on in Christian tradition to be the one of the arch enemies of Christianity and a clear heretic, probably one of the founders of Gnosticism. So there's really no debate. Well, I think he was really a Christian, just missed the point. He wasn't, as evidenced by the fruit of his life. Here's what Simon was. He was a professor of God, but not a possessor of God, as Bill McDonald says. Simon was a professor of God, but not a possessor of God. This simply just lines up with the rest of Scripture. This story just lines up with the rest of Scripture. And, and Matthew chapter 13 is a passage that shows us that there is a real faith and a false faith when, when it comes to responding to the gospel. There is a real faith and a false faith when it comes to responding to the gospel. And so I'm not teaching you something like, where are you getting this from, Pastor? That I, I think if you say a few words and you do the right things and you're saved, actually Matthew 13 shows us that there's a, a lot of people, in fact, three out of four in this parable are actually unsaved. There's only one quarter of them that are actually saved. And here's it's the parable of the farmer who goes out to sow, sow, sow seeds. You remember this story? I don't know what kind of farmer he was, but he sounds like he's just walking down the path like with his bucket, like throwing seeds everywhere, right? Because some are landing on the path. Before it even anything happens, the birds swoop down and, and grab it and eat it up. Some is, some is landing on, on rocky ground, not much soil there, so they spring up, and because of lack of depth, they're scorched when the sun comes out. Others land among the thorns. There's a little bit of growth, but then the thorns overtake it like a weeds in a garden. They overtake it and squash out the good. And yet the fourth kind of seed falls on good soil, where it grabs the seed and it pulls it in and the water and the sun nourish it and it springs up a crop of 30, 60, 100 fold. 
seen it over and over. This is, this is clearly, this parable clearly shows there's four, there's four types of hearts when it comes to hearing the gospel. Not every heart is simply going to be like, oh, yes, I hear, I believe, I see, I'm, uh, I want to follow Jesus. Some are going to outright have hard hearts, like the seed that falls on the path. They have hard hearts. They hear the word of God. They either don't understand it or they completely reject it. Satan is the, the bird that comes and steals it away. And so nothing ever happens with that seed. We get that, right? Some people just don't want the gospel. Some people aren't going to hear the gospel. But yet, there's two types of people that actually do hear the gospel. They actually do have some sort of response. And yet, they're still not truly saved by the power of Jesus. That's those with a, a rocky heart. They hear the word. Maybe for an instant they realize that I'm a sinner. They receive it with joy, it says, in the, as the, this parable is explained. They receive it with joy, yet it has no root in itself, so it endures for a while. But when the hard times, when the persecution comes because of the name of Jesus, they're like, really? Really? I thought it was going to make me comfortable. I thought it was about me. I'm out. But they said a prayer. Scripture's clear. Read Matthew chapter 13. Third type is those who who's the seed lands on thorny hearts. They hear the word, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfaithful. Oh man, you mean I can be saved from my sins? You mean I don't have to, to, to go to hell when I die? I can have the abundant life of Jesus right now? I want that. And then somehow between that moment and, and a few, in the moment they meet Jesus, there's this like, you know, the shift in mentality where it becomes, I just want the riches of the world, and I think Jesus should give me all the riches of the world, and so the thorns, they choke it out, and this really produces no fruit at all. And then there's the fertile heart. They hear the word, and they understand it, and they soak it in, and it produces, this seed produces grain, a hundredfold or sixtyfold or thirtyfold. Notice only one of these four scenarios is a heart condition that produces true salvation. Only the one that bears fruit it's not all the same measure of fruit. We can't like take a little, well, this isn't big enough fruit to really be, it's one that bears fruit. That is the heart that's truly saved. How do we know who's truly saved? Truth and time go hand in hand. Yes, we get excited, we rejoice when people hear the gospel, but, but yet truth and time go hand in hand. It's only the, the fertile heart that's truly saved. Simon missed it. The fertile heart is one that is now, goes from being controlled by the flesh to being controlled by the spirit. The fertile heart is one that has a new nature. It loves and it longs for God and his word. Uh, the, new, the fertile heart is one that has Christ's love for others. They've seen the love of Jesus so clearly and so radically, but they can't help but now love others. The fertile heart is one who has obedience to the voice of God and the word of God. God says it. I'm not going to question it. I'm not going to try and maneuver around this or interpret this in a different way. I'm just going to live it. This is a fertile heart. Fertile heart is one that God's qualities grow in the fruit of the Spirit. You're seeing ongoing evidence, not constantly, because fruit comes in season, so fruit of our spirits come in season, but ongoing evidence of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control is evidenced in Galatians 5. Fertile heart is one that becomes more like Christ and not more like the world fertile heart is one who trusts in Jesus alone for salvation, not my works or not my experiences. It's Jesus Christ alone. These four heart conditions, which one did Simon fall under? I'm guessing number three, the thorny one. Wow! I get it! 
but he couldn't get past this desire for all the worldly pleasures and the worldly things of this world. He, he wanted God just to enhance his show and pad his pocketbook and elevate his profile. That's all he wanted God for. This is a message that's preached a lot today. Wrongly preached, but this message is preached a lot today in churches. I jump on the internet and Google sermons, and it's mostly prosperity preachers who teach this idea that somehow, somehow, you're not here to serve Christ. Christ is here to serve you. And this, just, just come to Jesus. He, he, he loves you, and he's going to make you rich and prosperous, and he's going to be your supernatural servant instead of realizing that we're called to serve him. One of the most influential books I've ever read in my life was, was John MacArthur's Hard to Believe. Many years ago, I was in a church that, that, that didn't quite preach the prosperity gospel, but was pretty loose and goose, loosey and goosey. And, and, and I kept reading the Bible going, are you sure like, all it is is just say a prayer and then life goes on as normal? I'm not sure that's it. I call myself a Christian by name and nothing changes. And read John MacArthur's book and I was rocked. And I... Wow. Looked in that church and realized that probably most of the people in that church weren't even truly saved. Not being the judge. We're not to judge anybody. But we're to be discerning as God calls us to. Here's what being saved is. It's, it's realizing that salvation is about seeing a glorious Savior who'd rescue me from my sin and reconcile me with my Father so that I can live a changed life inside and out and no longer live for myself, but live for Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit because of his deep love for me. That's what Galatians 2.20 tells us. Unfortunately, Simon, although he had a glimpse of spirituality, he had a glimpse of like following the Lord, he is going to be among the many who, who got to heaven and, and heard these scary words from the Lord that are pointed out for us in Matthew 7.23. Lord, 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 I'm here. Lord, Lord, I'm ready. Lord, Lord. What does Jesus say to the people who, who don't have the fertile heart, who have the hard heart, who have the rocky heart or the thorny heart? Here's what he says to them. I never knew you apart from me. You practice, you practice her of lawlessness. Scary words, aren't they? I still kind of Every time I read them, it still causes me to go deep and be like, God, am I, am I falling into some of these things? Am, am I going to be the one that starts strong and fizzles? Is my mind still focused on the right things? Is my heart still focused on the glory of Jesus? Am I just saying things that aren't true in my heart? Or am I truly living this in the deepest part of my being that nobody can see? Because God, help me not be like one who starts strong and fizzles and fades and never gets to the finish line. Why can I get so excited about preaching a passage that seems to be pretty like hard and make a shift a little bit? Because I realize that we're all in danger of being assignment. What kind of pastor would I be if I just patted you on the back and told you you're okay, I'm okay, we're all okay, like you hear sometimes from many pulpits? Just smile and say you love Jesus. That'd be a horrible pastor. But the reason I get so impassioned because as I read this, I, I pray constantly, God, may this not be me, but God, may this not be our people. Please, Lord, may this not be our people. Please, O oh Holy Spirit, don't let people hear this sermon and then tune it out because it's not the feel-good message they wanted to come and hear at church. 
But instead, oh God, help us check our own hearts and see where we really stand and help us be a people who are wise and discerning that your movement may still go forward here in a powerful way. Why does God have this in here? He has this in here to make us aware. So we don't fall into Simon's shoes or walk unaware. He, he puts us in here to warn us that we need to be on our guard against wolves that try to sneak into the sheep pen. Kind of find it strange that verse 24, just transition to verse 25 was this, with this. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Let's see how they responded to Simon. Doesn't say you responded to anything. Like, will you pray for me? And also, like, like, it's almost like they had this, like, well, if you don't even want to pray for yourself, we're moving on to the next. And there's really no life application to this for us, but yet I think you've gotten a lot out of it so far. But yet this leaves me with this sense of, man, it's a good thing for us just to stop and evaluate our faith sometimes, isn't it? It's a good thing for us to stop and evaluate our own faith sometimes. That's the third thing I want you to write down. It's always a good thing to stop and evaluate my own faith. This is where this passage leaves me, leaves us. I don't tell you these things because I enjoy giving you a hard message. I don't tell you these things to shock you. I tell you these things because I love you. I had many of these my son over the last little while just sitting down and saying, son, do you realize what's really going on in your heart? Because here's how it's coming out, and it's not good for you, son. It's not good for me. It's not good for those around you. Why am I telling you this? Not because I think you're a bad person. Not because I'm trying to pummel you, because I love you. I want you to see it so you'll change, son. That's it. Sometimes as parents, we have to have hard, awkward conversations with our kids. You get that, right? Who likes them? One person likes them. You can come to my house and have them for me. None of us, but they're good for us and they're necessary for us. It's like, it's like ever, ever going to the coach's room when you're on a sports team and giving you an honest evaluation of where your skills really are. I hated those moments, but I, I needed them. Actually, you think you're pretty good at this? You actually are not so good as you thought. Yes, I am. Actually, I'm not. want to see the tape? Let's show some, let's show some game tape because it spurs us on to pursue the things that are most important in our lives. Here's, here's three ways that we can apply this text. Look in, look out, and look up. Three ways to apply this text. Look in, look out, and look up. Look in. Lamentations 3.40 tells us this. Let us examine ourselves and probe our ways and return to the Lord. Let us examine and probe our ways and return to the Lord. Like sometimes we sit through a surgeon and we allow that probe to go into us. It's so uncomfortable. We allow them to probe us to see what's really going on on the inside. So this morning, let the word of God truly probe your heart. It might cause you to squirm a little bit. It might cause you to be uncomfortable. But let the word of God truly probe your heart and let the great physician give you the diagnosis. Don't try and self-defend here. Don't, don't try and, and, and make yourself look better than you are. Let the great physician really check your soul. Do do you really have a real faith in Jesus Christ or are you more like a wax doll at the museum in Niagara Falls? You look so full of life on the outside but in reality you're so empty and dead on the inside when it comes to the things of God. I know some are thinking, but but I believe. 
been taught my whole life, just got to believe. Can I share with you a passage from James chapter 2, verse 19? You believe? Simon believed. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe that and shudder. In other words, even the demons believe that God is real. And they have an emotional response. It's not one of love. It's one of like, ah! But they believe. It's not just a mere intellectual assent to a set of theological presuppositions. It's a belief in like, I see a savior. I want to know God. I want to love God. My, my heart wants to, to pursue God. I want righteousness over sin, and my sin bugs me so much and it badgers me until I repent. I want evidence of God at work in me. I don't just want the, the proverbial slap on the back from God. I want God to work in me and change me. I want God to produce fruit in me. Take a look in. Is there fruit happening? Is there a little mini God at work stories happening in your life? Maybe not every single day. We don't see them every single day, but at least... Every once in a while, there's a God showing up in our lives. No God at work stories? Probably there's no God. But I come to church. I hang with the right people. It's about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as the Holy Spirit reveals to you that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. But I've been baptized. Just like Simon, I was baptized. You know what? Good for you. I've been to the pool and got wet too on my own. Didn't mean a thing to me. Many people get baptized. Why? Because they want to fit in because they grew up in this place of like, well, it's just what I'm supposed to do. When I get to be 12 years old or 14 years old, I get baptized. Or they're in a, a, a baptism service and, and people are going to the front and there's this, this like little emotional thing and like, I want to be a part of it. They come to the front and, and they get baptized, but nothing ever really, they never really encountered God. There's part of the hype that was going on. Friends all went to be baptized, so I want to be in the baptism class too, so I wasn't left out. One of the people would think of me if I wasn't baptized, they said I was supposed to be, so I did. And that when they got in the tank, they never realized the full significance of what baptism is. It's saying that I am dead to my old self. Outward reality, what's already happened on the inside, I'm dead to myself. The blood of Jesus has washed over me and cleansed me from all my sins, and I'm being raised to a brand new life in Jesus Christ. That part never happened in their hearts and in their lives. It was just a religious ritual. Are you really filled with the life and the love of Jesus? When you sing worship songs, does your heart truly get like, wow, I have a Savior? When you open up the Word of God, is it like, oh, I gotta open the Word of God? Or is it like, man, I get to commune with God today, I get to hear from God today, I get, I get, I get to, to, to see God today through His Word? Is, is, is that your reality? When you walk out your front doors, you see the world differently. You're like, man, I see the world so differently than my neighbors. What's up? That's evidence of God in you. Is your heart energized by prayer and by sharing your faith? Are you more of a like, oh, I wish you'd stop talking about prayer and tell me to share my faith again, really? Take a deep look within you. Do you live a faith that leads you to care more about what God thinks than what you want or what others think? Take a deep look within. Also do this. Look without. Look out. Not like a, hey, look out. Like, look out. There's one judge, and that's Jesus Christ, and we're not to be that judge, but God also calls his disciples in Matthew 10. When he sends them out, you know what he says? He's like, be discerning. Be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Be aware that not everybody who claims to be a Christian or even a preacher today is for real. 
So many false doctrines out there that I'm watching people get all wrapped up in without any discernment. So many people that are willing to hitch my wagon to because he's, he's cool and charisma. He's got all the things I want to hear without really having any word of God discernment. Be aware that everybody, not that we're supposed to be sneaking suspicious of everybody, just be aware. There's such a thing as a false convert and a fake Christian. What do you do, what do, you do with that? I think you love, you love people as Peter did. I think Peter's rebuke here was one out of love. I think it was one out of love. I think as we're made aware of people who might not actually be believers, they might say the right things or maybe the wrong things, and, and they might be, but there's just something that I think you love them enough to have a talk, talk with them and a conversation with them about, like, are, are you really following Jesus Christ? The things you're saying aren't lining up with Scripture. Your heart doesn't seem to be in a good place. You can barely drag yourself to church on Sunday morning. What's going on? You don't say a word in small group. Are you, are you really in love with Jesus Christ? You're doing everything the world's doing. Are you really, really been saved radically by Jesus Christ? Love others enough to call them out like Peter did, and then this, pray for them. I don't think we stand as judge over people, but I think as we are led by the Spirit to pray for people who we're not sure if they're really saved, we pray our hearts out for people like their eternal destiny is on the line, like their life here and now is on the line. We pray for people. And even if we're not sure, there's really no evidence of, of God. Maybe God's there and he just hasn't produced a fruit yet. We'll, we'll pray that fruit into happening. And finally, this is you look out, ask the Lord to create in all of us a pure and authentic and holy relationship with him, hearts that truly love and seek him. And look out for yourself of some of the things that evidence from Simon's life that can easily creep into our lives. God, you've got to do this for me. If you don't do this, if you do this, I'll serve you. If you don't, I won't. Look out, then finally look up. This is the, the crux of the whole matter of this sermon on being aware of false converts. Look up. Keep your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. The moment we stop taking our eyes off the Lord, you know what happens? We can easily fall into any one of these things and fall away. I read this and it motivates me. I pray it motivates you to like, man, I just want to again be consumed with a love for God. I just want to again be in a place where there's, there's fruit being produced in me all the time. I want to be in a place where I'm hearing the voice of the Lord and where I'm seeing God do things in my life that I know I wouldn't be without God. I long for that. I want to keep my eyes on Jesus. I want the gospel to be the top of my page of my newsfeed every single day and I want to get it there when it starts falling down the newsfeed. I want to get it back to the place, the gospel, the cross. It's Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. That's why I exist. Look up. Keep your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. It's the only way to endure till the very end. The scriptures tell us only those who endure till the end get the prize. I don't want all of you walking out of here today thinking you're unsaved. That's not the point of this passage. Many believers in this place who are saved and you know it and you're loving the Lord. I don't want you to call into question your faith when there's nothing to be called into question. Are you perfect at this? No. Am I perfect at this? No. But it's also, I'm convinced, many people in this room who've never truly met Jesus Christ. So I don't want to placate this. It's like, you're all good. You all go up. No, I think there's some deep heart work. I think the probe needs to go deep. 
think all of us need to sit before the Lord and, and say, God, show me my heart. Not what I want to see, but my heart. Show me my heart. And not be foolish like Simon, but truly repent of your sin and come to Jesus Christ. It's not about religion. It's about a relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you know deep down in your heart today that you really don't know Jesus, oh, I pray this has been a warning and an exhortation to not leave the pursuit of Jesus and to get things till you go home or till next week. That'll never happen. You'll get in the car and it'll all be gone. The enemy will try and steal that seed quicker than you can get in the car, but to even right now be humble enough to admit, like, I think you're talking about me, Daryl. I think you're talking about me. The greatest decision you could ever make is to admit that and come to Jesus Christ today and say, God, I need to be truly saved by Jesus Christ. I need a Savior, and I need to know it. I need everybody else to know it, too. And then you'll find the abundant life that Jesus promised that will carry you right through all of eternity. Let me pray. God, by the power of the word of God and by the work of the Holy Spirit, work in our hearts right now, Father. For those that are here that know, they know deep down they've never truly encountered Jesus Christ. They see you working in other people. They see all the things that, that they, they should be experiencing, but they're not. Oh, God, would you... Arrest them in their seats right now and show them that they have a Savior who came named Jesus to die for them, that they might no longer live for themselves but live for you, O oh God, where true freedom is found. God, would you open up hearts to the full reality, the wonder of your Son, to the glorious nature of your word, to the, the awesome privilege of prayer, to the joy of, of worship and the, the, the privilege of sharing our faith with others. God, for those that aren't here today, they're here today and they just don't know, they just don't know. Some aren't convinced or not, so some just don't know. God, I pray you just wouldn't let them storm out these doors and go on their lives in oblivion to the things of you. The cause them, Lord, to come to you right now. Father, for those that do know, and they are aware, but yet... We're also aware that these things creep so easily into our lives, this all-about-me mentality that our culture promotes. We're so prone to buy into the message that is not the message of the gospel, this message that you are here only simply to make our lives whatever we want them to be. You're a little genie in a bottle. God, I pray that you'd uh, protect those that are in the faith from this mentality. Oh, God, protect us from a, a relationship with you that never sees repentance as important. Protect us, Lord, from this fake. I got everything. I got all the answers. I got all the outward makings of a Christian. But inside, I am wasting away and dying because I've ultimately left my first love, Jesus. Protect us from these things, oh God. And stir within us a desire to fully abandon ourselves to you again. To fully live our lives for your glory again. Oh God, would you be so gracious to allow your spirit right now, right now, to work in every heart as you see fit in a way that we can't ignore it, in a way that we can't go on without first acknowledging what you're doing in our lives. In Jesus' name.